Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello? Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Hello, welcome along. This week on Rides' Routine, we're chatting to Janet Skeslian Charles. Her new novel is The Paris Library. It's all about the librarians who risk their lives against the Nazis. Uh, we talk about what happens to her brain as she works through the day. Nothing like on a deep biological level, you know, I've not got a machine out or anything, just how she feels and how that changes during the day. Also, why she writes in a way that makes it hard for her to delete things and why it's tricky for her to stop. I am somebody who never wants it to end. You have to kind of pry the manuscript out of my hands. So I could I could fiddle forever. I'm a fiddler. I, I could fiddle with the text, fiddle with words uh, forever. And that's probably not a good thing. There is more on the way with Janet Skesley and Charles in this week's Writer's Routine. Yes. Hello, it's Writer's Routine. My name's Dan Simpson. This is where we take a look inside the day of some of the best authors around. Uh, this week, it's Janet Skeslian Charles. Her debut was Moonlight in Odessa. It took like, 10 years to write, pretty much. And we talk about why in this chat. Uh, her new novel is The Paris Library, which is all about the librarians who risked their lives during the Nazis' war on words. And you can hear how... Uh, when she first spotted the, 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 the story that this had happened, she instantly knew there was a book in it and she knew that she'd have to write it. Uh, it's split across two places and two timelines, Paris in 1939 and Montana in 1983. We talk about why, how she got into that, why the two timelines, why the two places and how she researched it as well. You can hear why she spends time either on Google or in the American Library in Paris, and why she changes the structure of the sentences between her characters to explain what they're like. Which also, why she likes to know everything that she plots, but that doesn't always mean that she knows everything. And we'll finally answer the question, why is your favourite pen your favourite pen? It's all on the way. And when we start things off, as always, chatting about what Janet Skesley and Charles uh, sees around her in the place where she sits down to write. Um, so usually I would have tons of paper on my desk and I removed about half of the paper. So you can see parts of the desk. I have a, um, a calendar on my desk with... Uh, spiral because I love notebooks and calendars with spirals. They're easier to keep open. Um, 
I have a I have a light on my desk, which is usually used for uh, Zoom meetings, which I didn't have before this year. I don't think anyone had one before this year, so that's a big change. And if I look out my window, I look onto a courtyard with uh, tall trees. Brilliant. You've got your tidy desk. Is there anything work-wise on the desk? If I were to come in, would I have a clue as to what you were writing? I think if you tried, I don't think you could interpret my handwriting. So um, maybe not, maybe not. But on my bookshelves, you can see you can see the things that I've been interested in. I've got lots of bookshelves with the, you know the Russians, with the French, with World War One, with World War Two. So you can kind of uh, glimpse my interests there. Are you a are you a frequent vociferous note taker, Janet? I am, and I not only take notes on paper, I take notes in books. I love Martinelia, and I love buying secondhand books because I love reading what people have underlined, and I love reading their, their notes in the margins. Incredible. Is there, is there a, a formal uh, format of your plotting? So, I mean, post-it notes, a whiteboard, a pinboard with, with strings all over the place? I, I keep it mainly in my head, but when I... When I did do for my latest book, I had a I had a dual timeline, in and I just stared at the wall for about a month, maybe two, trying to figure out the the timeline and and and, and how to weave them together. Maybe paper would have been more efficient. <laughs> um, perhaps. What about inspiration on the walls around you, Janet? Um, it, what do you look at to be inspired when maybe you're you're at a low point? I wish that my desk faced the window, uh, but it, it the the way the room is, you you can't really face the window. The, the window is too low, uh, so I face a wall, and uh, it's maybe not so good for inspiration, but it's great for concentration. So you got nothing on the wall? No, I didn't. Um, have you ever been in, in, in cli- inspired to maybe put something there? The walls are made of cinder block, so I would have to be really strong to be able to, to, to pierce the walls. But on my, on my desk, I have a few, um, I have a, a little typewriter Christmas ornament that my editor got me, and I have a, 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 a red tapestry that a friend got me. So I think those, maybe the walls aren't so much inspiration. It's just the, the little two things by my desk. What do you think those are doing to you, for you, Janet? I've, I've asked about, I've asked the inspiration question quite a lot. When you do look down at the typewriter and the gift that your friend got you, um, what is it doing to the to the way you work? Is it, is it motivating at all? I think it's just nice to, you know, writing, you're, you're alone a lot of the time. And so when you see these objects that people have thoughtfully given you, it's a reminder that there's an outside world out there and that you will eventually rejoin the outside world. You're in, in your little bubble right now. But uh, these thoughts, these people are thinking of you, so that's really nice. For my other, for my, for my book, while I was still writing it, I, I had a, a bunch of greeting cards from my, from my parents, from my sister, from my friends. And when I, when I finished the book, I put those elements away, and now I'm slowly collecting new ones for this book. What are you writing on, Janet? Is it a laptop? Is it maybe a typewriter itself? I have a I have a laptop, but usually when I write, I write by hand in spiral notebooks, and uh, I do that because I, it's too easy. If if I get frustrated, it's too easy to wipe a first draft or or a first chapter that I'm not happy with. Whereas if you write it down, you really have to put a lot of effort into 
scratching it out so you can't see it anymore. So for first drafts especially, I really like to write by hand. That's intriguing because I would have thought the ability to be able to delete something is, is maybe quite helpful for a first draft because you can start again, you can rewrite as you go, maybe perfecting that first draft. Why do you think it's important to, to to not be able to just cut something so quickly? Because you can cut everything so quickly and then it's gone. Okay. I, I, is there... I, I guess if you were on a laptop, you could you could have like a, a second document and, and kind of keep everything that you... Uh, had it had erased is 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 the idea of of you writing in the spiral notebooks and not cutting something does it do you find that it, it makes you keep going when perhaps you wouldn't normally absolutely i i keep going and i i don't i don't ever cross anything out i i just maybe put a parenthesis around it when i'm and i'm not happy with it or i realize i'm not going to use it whereas if i'm typing sometimes i'm I'm not happy with what's what I'm typing and I'll erase it. And then the next day I'll think maybe I was a bit harsh. Maybe I should have kept it. And so that's why, that's why I write first drafts now. And how does the process work of you moving from first to a second draft on the computer? I think what's really nice about moving from pen and paper to computer is you, when you're typing it again, it's a way to edit. So it, it is really helpful to type word word by word, and then you decide whether you want to keep each word or not, or each sentence or not. So it's just a really, I really like being able to look at the words uh, on that level. Does the the fact that you're writing with pen and paper, how much does that affect, not the way you are aren't cutting stuff, but also what you're writing? I don't know if I'm reading too much into it, but pen and paper feels more more tangible and more romantic? I guess I love my pen. I love my notebooks. I choose them carefully. And so it's really a pleasure to sit down with them. And for, I know you've asked what, in previous shows, uh, for people who are maybe feeling a little um, lack of inspiration or maybe facing a little writer's block, to me, the process of writing is so pleasurable. I, I have my favorite pen, I have my favorite paper, I have my, my tea, and uh, sitting down is really a pleasure. And uh, when I first started writing, I would journal a few pages and then go into my writing. So I didn't put any expectations on myself. I would just think, oh, I'm just having a cup of tea, I'm writing a little bit in my journal. And that, that maybe took the pressure off. What is it about your favorite pen that makes it a favorite? Um, it's a Waterman pen, and uh, I, when I was a, an exchange student in in France, when I was fifteen, my host family gave me a Waterman pen, and since then I've I've really collected them and really like them. It depends on when I get up. Sometimes I'm up at five. Sometimes I'm up at seven. But I like to I like to get writing right away um, while my mind is still fresh. And so I might do a little stretching and then have my tea and then just sit down and write. And if I, if I exercise, it'll be in the later in the afternoon. Um, 
but that's that's what works for me. Some people write late into the night, but uh, I I can't do that. That's when I do my emails or correspondence, things like that, that that don't maybe take the concentration. I should say that I live in Paris and. Um, there are four construction sites around my building, so construction can start as early as seven, and so that's jackhammers and really loud noises, or, you know, the beep, beep, beep of the trucks backing up. So earlier is better for me. Uh, it's uh, Paris is a really beautiful city, but it takes a lot of upkeep. So when you when you start writing early, how long will you carry on writing for before before you feel that you need a break? Um, well, I drink a lot of tea, so I take a lot of breaks to go get that tea. Um, just, a, you know, five or 10 minute breaks, maybe work for 45 or 50 minutes and then take a 10 minute break and then sit back down again. Um, I try to work until noon, sometimes one o'clock. You mentioned that you, you can't work late on. That's when you get your emails, your correspondence, your admin done. Um, what is it about the morning that, 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 that helps you write, that helps you work? How do you feel your energy change as you move later on in the day? I can feel my brain just not, not work as, as well. I, I can feel it. I can feel it get tired. It's amazing, isn't it? How, what, because I'm kind of the same as you. When did you start to realize that you were, did work best in the morning? I think I've always been a, um, morning person probably from my mid-20s on from my mid-20s on but I know people who you know they don't wake up until 10 p.m and then they might write late into the night so it's really interesting how everybody has a different body clock yeah I'm just I've, I've spoken to you know a few authors now and body clocks and energy cycles really keep me coming back I'm just fascinated by them you say that you you tend to write until around midday one o'clock perhaps um, what, what makes a good writing day for you? I think when I can just sit and focus, because sometimes it's really hard to just sit and focus and get into the text. And when I'm, when that's not working, I might start researching. I, I might open up another book and, and look a little bit. I've, I've been working on some historical fiction. So if I'm starting to feel frustrated, I don't want I don't want that frustration to last very long, so I'll turn to a book and uh, and try to learn something, um, and then come back to the text refreshed. What will you hope to to have have written by the time that you stop? Is there a word count? Is there a C name? Some days are you know some days it's maybe one page or five hundred words. Another day it's two thousand words. It just depends where I am in the process. When I'm starting, I just tell myself you know write write 500 words and then you're done for the day. But once I'm in a project, then I want, I want to go for a longer, longer bit of time. This year has been really exceptional. It's been really hard for people to concentrate and everybody's home all the time, including my neighbors. So that has, that does have an effect. It's interesting that at the start, you, you ease yourself into it almost with, with the 500 words, letting the ideas take shape. What is the hardest part? of writing a story for, for you? Is, is there a point in the novel where it feels like it, it you can't go on, that this is never going to end? I am somebody who never wants it to end. You have to kind of pry the manuscript out of my hands. So I could, I could fiddle forever. I'm a fiddler. I, I could fiddle with the text, fiddle with words uh, forever. And that's probably not a good thing. 
but um, <laughs> but uh, so I, I don't know. I just I enjoy being in that world. Um, I enjoy being in that world. I don't really think of writing as a nine to five job. I feel like it's almost twenty four seven because you're all you're always listening to what other people are saying, looking at their mannerisms, uh, watching the news, listening for stories, um, listening to well over. When you're eavesdropping on people in the bus or in the metro, you're always thinking of the story and always thinking about what you're hearing or smelling or tasting can contribute to your story. When you have the first idea for a story, Janet, how long will you let it percolate for? How long will you let it bubble away before you start work? From my first book, I lived in Odessa, Ukraine from 1994 to 1996. I thought about it until 2006 and then I wrote the book from 2006 to 2008 so that's a that's a decade that's that's 10 it's a 10 years time. what were you waiting for in that time before you felt right to write it I I don't think I was mature enough to understand what I'd seen and what had happened and so it took a long time for me to make sense of what happened uh, it was uh, Ukraine right after perestroika so it was kind of like the Wild East, and uh, there were there was there were mobsters, there were uh, email order brides, uh, there was a lot of corruption, including at the school where I worked. So it was it was really a a beautiful place, but a very strange place. So when you suddenly sat down in two thousand and six to write it, um, how did you feel different? How did you feel more mature? Was that something that you? that you recognized and you thought, hang on, I can, I can probably do this justice now. Yes. I, I had my character and I had a setting for me. Setting is the most important because I feel like where we're from really, really contributes to who we are and it really shapes us. And so I really wanted to write a book set in Odessa. It's a beautiful city uh, on the black sea um, with French and Italian architecture, wonderful cuisine, amazing people. But, um, so many, so many problems uh, because of the former Soviet Union and uh, the government and the mentality there. So um, it just took a long time to think about it. But then once I had my ideas, once I had my character, once I had my setting, everything was, everything flowed. And you say that you, you're happiest when you're in the world, when you're writing, when you're tinkering away and you could keep doing that forever. Um, how do you know when, when is the right time to, to stop with a draft? How do you know, and then the perfect time to, to put it away, to put the final full stop at the end of the last sentence and, and put it out there into the world? I work with a writing group and uh, a lot of writing is solitary, as you know. So it's really lovely to meet with my writing group since uh, the confinement, the first confinement here in Paris in March of last year. Uh, we started meeting <clears throat> every week. And so that's really been lovely to have that deadline and to have that exchange. And I love, uh, in my writing group, I love reading what other people are working on. And it is really inspiring to see to see their work progress and to, to watch them move from draft to draft. And uh, I, I enjoy the process even with my own work. Sometimes I can't always see the process but I, or the progress, but I have to trust that it's there. I would love to be one of those people who can just sit down and write a first draft, but I'm a tinkerer, so I go back to everything. But I think in the end, that means that it's 
a draft is polished, but it does maybe on the other hand, it does mean that um, it's a lot slower. The process is a lot slower. Earlier, you mentioned that it, it's all about setting and scenery for you. That's what that's what helps you get into the story. Now, your your uh, the first book was was Moonlight in Odessa. Um, after living in the Ukraine, the new novel is the Paris Library. You live in Paris right now. Um, uh, this is a, a you know a fairly trite question, but how good would you, how confident would you feel rather of you know writing a, a story about? Um, the the jungles of Bolivia, for instance, if you hadn't been there? I believe in research and I don't think people have to live something to be able to write it. So I feel like I could could do a a wonderful job of researching it. And uh, I think it would be too bad if we could only write what we'd experienced. Um, I chose the Paris Library because I worked at the library and I believe in its mission. And uh, the the book... um, in part is about Dorothy Reeder, who, uh, who's, who defied the Nazis in order to get uh, books into the hands of her Jewish readers. And no one at the time knew of the story. Um, even when I moved to Paris in 2000, when I started working at the library in 2010, I hadn't heard that story. In Paris, 4% of the street names, um, 4% of the streets are named after women. And so for me, a big part of the story was writing so that people would know about these incredible librarians. And that was a really big motivation. Um, but I think, I think I would have been just as motivated if I'd been writing it from Montana because I love the story. Now, now that's what it's about. So when were you first made aware of these amazing women who were doing so much um, during the war on words um, yeah, when, when, when were you first made aware of it? Well, my colleagues, Nida Koshaw and Simone Gallo, told me about this story, and they were really so important. Other, otherwise, I don't think I would have known about it. Simone has been at the library since the 1970s, so he knows everything, but he's very reticent, and he doesn't really talk or doesn't really offer information, whereas Nida has a background in uh, museums, um, and, and creating displays and exhibitions. And so she was the one who got Simone to speak and he told the story of what he knew. And she wrote to libraries uh, as far away as Boise, Idaho, um, near the West Coast in the United States uh, to get the information about the librarians. So it was um, really thanks to them that I had the bones of the story. And at what moment after having after hearing about these people, at what moment did you think, hang on, this might work as my next novel? I think I knew right away. I think it just gave me chills, that story. Straight away, you heard it and you thought, this is book worthy. Mm-hmm. This is a novel. So what do you do next as a writer then, Janet, when, when you've got, you're starting to form the background of this, how do you move it into a stage where you can write the first sentence? What happens in between that and the moment when you first got the idea? I think I asked around a little bit. I asked Simone Gallo if anyone had written about the library. And he said that some um, writers had come in and looked through the archives and said, no, there's not enough information here. There's not, a, there's not enough for a book. And so on the one hand, I was glad to hear that no one had written about the library. But on the other hand, it was daunting to hear that there that professionals believed there wasn't enough information. Um, but that was 
that was before when archives weren't available online. And nowadays, people are adding more and more through blogs, through archives. So many documents are available online. Um, a lot of a lot of what I used as my documentation came from Chicago. It came from Rhode Island. Um, so not much um, about the library itself came from the library itself. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. More from Janet on the show in just a sec. A very quick interruption. Just to remind you that you can always support us on Patreon if you enjoy the show. If you've learned anything along the way that has helped the way that you tell your stories, you can just send a little bit of cash our way every month just to help us tick over, to help us do all the little things and keep bringing you interviews with the best authors around as often as we can. It doesn't have to be a lot. Just a couple of dollars really goes a long way. It'll get you our eternal thanks. It'll get you some merch. It will get you bonus episodes, maybe. There's even the chance for your book to sponsor this show. So if you've published something the last year, if it didn't get the fanfare that it clearly deserved because you spent so long working on it, if lockdown kind of ruined all that, let me give it the big up. Let me plug it and give it that fanfare. To do that, you just need to support us over at patreon.com forward slash writers routine. Some podcasts are sponsored by mattresses, others by razors. Uh, What else is there? A lot of inter- a lot of Squarespace, isn't there? Some are sponsored by Squarespace, most are sponsored by Squarespace. In fact, we might be on the ads at the start and the end. I haven't heard them yet. Uh, but in this podcast, we're sponsored by you. We're sponsored by your books. You can make that happen. Uh, Patreon.com forward slash writers routine. Just a little bit. Whatever you can give us, how often you can give us it, it really goes a long way, I promise. Right, let's get back to it then with Janet Skessley and Charles. In this half, we talk about her new novel, The Paris Library, what it's like being stuck between two language and not figuring out which word you need to use. Also, why it's important to take pauses when you are writing. And we pick things up talking about research. When she's writing across two time frames in two different places, half the world away, how does she start with the research? I became an obsessive Googler. 
And so I Googled Dorothy Reader American Library in Paris every single day, probably for four years. And every single day there were new things that would come up. And uh, one, for example, I found photos of her that were for sale on eBay. I found photos of her that were available from the Chicago Tribune archives that were being sold. Um, so it was it's very interesting to see um, what you can find on the Internet. So I ordered the archives of the American Library in Paris from the American Library Association. So that was probably a thousand pages that I combed through. I went to the Bibliothèque Nationale, uh, which has 40 million books, and I delighted in their um, in their copies of the Paris edition of the New York Herald Tribune. They had just the crisp newspapers from 1939 and 1940, so I read through them. I read, um, I wanted to know the concerns of librarians, in the 1930s and 1940s, so I read many, many back issues of Library Journal magazine, which was also available at the Bibliothèque Nationale. I read memoirs of women who'd lived through the occupation. So it was so interesting. And when you're researching World War II, everything feels so important. Sometimes it's hard to stop. It was certainly hard for me to stop. How is that as a writer when you're um, when you're creating something fresh that's based on something that you know and you've thoroughly researched, um, everything that you know about characters and, and the, the times back then, is it all beneficial for you writing or, or sometimes is it a bit detrimental because you find yourself writing fact rather than the fiction, if that makes sense? Um, I, I heard, um, Matt Hag tell you that it's important to know a little bit more than you need to. And I agree with that. And I do see what you're saying when you know so much, it's so tempting to want to share it. And then your work sounds academic. So you're right that you do have to guard against that. Um, but it's also so interesting. Everything is so interesting that it really is hard to stop. What about when you're making a plot with all this research, Jan? I think my my biggest challenge was I, I had such reverence for the real-life characters and I'd gotten to know them so well and spoken to their descendants that I was afraid to put words in their mouths. And so they didn't come off as real characters. They just came off as very wooden. And so it really did take me years to be able to put words in their mouth and to feel comfortable and confident. You mentioned this at the start of the interview, but this is um, it's it's a dual timeline book split across Paris in the 1930s and Montana, where where you grew up in the 1980s. Yes. So um, how did you keep track of that? Not just keep track of that, but also they're two completely different parts of the world at two completely different moments of history. How are you putting yourself in that frame of mind to tell these two different stories? I looked for the parallels. I started um, I started the book at a very tense time in Europe in 1939 when everyone was watching to see what Hitler would do and watching to see if someone would finally stand up to him. And then I started the, the Montana time during the Cold War, right after the Soviets had shot down a passenger airplane that was going from Anchorage, Alaska to Seoul, Korea. 
And so there was the this apprehension or this feeling that they that the Soviets would even kill children. They would they would kill innocent victims. And uh, I grew up on the plains, and of course we had uh, we had nuclear missiles buried on our land, uh, just like you would plant potatoes. Um, and uh, I think in the book, I um, in doing the research, I found that that the the Soviets missiles could get to us as in 25 minutes, the time it would take my character to get ready for school. So there were those parallels of nervousness, of not knowing what would happen. Um, and then at the end, um, I wanted to end on a positive note. So I, I, I finished the book with Perestroika, with Ronald Reagan going to Moscow for kind of a peace conference with, with Gorbachev. And of course, with the liberation of Paris, um, so that's what I did. Even though the times were different, I looked for the parallels and the the characters of Deal and Lily. They both start when they're very young, and they both rebel against their fathers. So even though they live on different continents in different times, there are those threads that bind them together. And with those two different continents in different times, how much did you think about writing them differently, stylistically? Um, was that important to you that that Maybe they might be the, the the two sides of the story might might be told in different ways. Yes, absolutely. I think I think Lily speaks with short sentences, a lot of slang, whereas Odile's sentences are are um, constructed in a different way and they're a lot longer. She might she wouldn't use any slang. So yes, I went to a I went to a literary festival in Bordeaux and a woman was telling me about her favorite writer. And when I asked why he was her favorite writer, she said, oh, his sentences, they are so long. And I always thought about that when I was writing Odile to really respect that, that longer sentence structure. I think I got to the point where if I couldn't think of the word, I would just leave it blank and then come back to it later because I'm I'm an English speaker living in France. And so sometimes the word comes to me in French. Um, and sometimes I'm kind of stuck between two languages where it doesn't come in either language. And it, at the beginning, I used to get very, very frustrated. But now I know that if I give it time and stop thinking about it, it'll come to me at three in the morning. You just said something which, which I've always wanted to ask dual speakers, which I never have. And I only speak one language. What language do you think in when you're in Paris? In English, in English. But some, you know, sometimes the French, um, sometimes the words are so perfect that they just come bubbling up. Uh, yeah, it's, it always fasc fascinates me all about that. And now, just lastly, I guess, Janet, with, with your with your plotting, how much of the story do you like to know before you start work? I think I like to know everything, but. In the end, my characters surprise me, so I usually don't know what's going to happen. I think I know what's going to happen, and that makes me feel secure in my work. Um, and I don't mind when changes happen or when my characters surprise me. But I, it is a nice feeling to know what's going to happen, and it's a nice feeling to be surprised and to realize you're wrong, that the characters are different than you thought they would be. Well, at what point are you being surprised? How do you know that your character is taking this in a new direction? Well, for example, um, I thought my character was going to die, but she lived. Amazing. Yeah. At what, so yeah. At, at what point did that become clear to you? About draft five. For the first five drafts, she was on her deathbed. And, um, and then all of a sudden, 
she she um she had better health and she um had a better frame of mind and she she lived i'd like to to try and unpack that because it's such a it, it's not something that's tangible is it like uh, trying to figure out why your character between draft four and draft five suddenly decided to live is it's kind of hard to get my head around because it's almost like it's always been there the whole time in your head for you as a writer moving into draft five what was it about her that meant she had to stay alive was it was it her calling to you did it make sense in the story or was it that it hadn't it wasn't quite right before i think i when i plotted the book out in my head I thought about it one way, and then there were subtle changes throughout as I was drafting, and those subtle changes, maybe that I didn't see right away, made it so that the the ending that I had envisioned originally was not really the ending. That's incredible. The, the, the idea that your ending changes, that any ending changes, um, it just absolutely blows my mind. So uh, now properly, lastly, we've spoken about um, how you figured out that you like your what you work best in the morning. What else um, through writing books now, um, especially the new novel, The Paris Library, um, which is due to be pretty big. I think, you know, translated into 16 languages. It was at the, the end of a, a massive auction with 12 different publishers. What have you learned about how you write best? Not just the early mornings, but everything else that you can take into future work. I think it's also important to to take pauses. A lot of people imagine a writer is, is sitting at their desk all day, and I do sit at my desk a lot or sit um, in, in my chair a lot. But I think going for bike rides, going for walks, I think it's very important to just let your let your subconscious wander. And sometimes if you're having problems on the page, you'll come back refreshed and those problems will resolve themselves. But of course it was you kind of working on those problems in the back of your mind. So I think it's, I think it's important to do those things. I think it's important to, to be disciplined and sit at the computer or sit at the desk, but I think it's also important to get up and, and, uh, and uh, interact. And uh, I taught for many, many years and the friction of, of having a job, I think is very helpful too. And to, um, because I was always happy to go teach and then I was always happy to come back to my desk. But now you, now you're, you're, you're not teaching now. No, um, no, I stopped last year for a little while, but I probably, um, will return to it because I, I do enjoy working with young people and I do enjoy, I do enjoy, um, that friction of, um, of the, of the classroom and listening to different points of view. And, and I think that students are very inspiring. And that is it for this week's Writer's Routine. Thank you so much to Janet for coming on the show. You can get a copy of her new book, The Paris Library, using the link wherever you're listening and over at uh, writersroutine.com. While you're on the website, one of the best places that you can get in touch with us, by the way, on the contact form. Uh, quite a few emails recently recommending what authors uh, I should try and chat to. I'm always on board for that. Might not happen like ridiculously soon. I've got quite a backlog which the publishers aren't really happy about. What are you going to do? Uh, so, but keep sending them to me. If, if there's an author that you want to hear from, 
uh, send it to me. I get quite a few, but I will try. I will put the emails out there, I promise. It's writersroutine.com. Um, while you're keeping busy on the internet, you can always support us at patreon.com forward slash writersroutine. Make sure you follow us wherever you listen to your podcasts and over at Twitter as well. We are at writerspod there. Uh, next week, we're chatting to Nigel Farndale. Uh, his book, The Blasphemer, was shortlisted for the 2010 Costa Book Awards. His current novel is The Dictator's Muse, which is hard to say. It took me about three goes. Uh, it's all about a filmmaker, an athlete, and a Welsh communist in 1930s Europe. So in the past, just like this week's one was. Uh, that's next week with uh, Nigel Farndale on the show, and I shall see you then. Bye. <laughs> Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com.